to begin by reading something from an old Buddhist text called All Things Conditioned. <clears throat> All things conditioned are unstable, impermanent, fragile in essence as an unbaked pot. Like something borrowed or a city founded on sand, they last only a short while. They are inevitably destroyed like plaster washed off in the rains, like the sandy bank of a river. They are conditioned and their true nature is frail. They are like the flame of a lamp which rises suddenly and as soon goes out. They have no power of endurance like the wind or like foam, unsubstantial, essentially feeble. The sage knows what is true reality and sees all conditioned things as empty and powerless. So this teaching on conditioning, on all things conditioned, was really quite an essential teaching of the Buddha during the time of his awakening, which really does point to the empty nature of things. This is really one of the um, significant things that the Buddha pointed out, that all things, all things of this world are conditioned in, in nature. And therefore, they're not solid in that way. They're not, if it's about ourselves, it's not so personal. It's empty, empty of self-solidity, of self-substantiality. We speak of things that are conditioned, and what that means is that whatever is happening now, in this instant, are the conditions that are coming together due to conditions that have happened in the past. It's very scientific in that regard, that the only reason anything is occurring now is because certain things came together in the past that gave rise to something arising in this moment. In other words, this happens because of that. Our food arrives on the table because of a whole set of conditions that have came about before that food arrived on the table like I was speaking about before with the eating meditation in regards to what it really takes to get food to arrive on our table. You know, the farmers and the farmers' families, the, the elements having to be a certain way, the delivery men, um, uh, the, the, the people who helped prepare the food, the cooks, the people to eat the food. I mean, so many sets of conditions have to come together for that food to arrive. We're at a time of the year now that the leaves are just starting to show up on the trees. This is a little, some of the trees have just little baby leaves or some of the bushes have little baby leaves. You know, that's conditioned. It's conditioned because the temperature is changing. There's a cycle that's just finishing of the cold winter, the hi hibernation time of the, of the year. The sap is starting to run through the trees, through the plants and the, the leaves are bursting forth. It's conditioned based on all the other factors that have been in place. Sometimes the building is quite cold. That's conditioned. <laughs> it's conditioned by the way that this building was built, you know, and the kind of heat that we have here and how many hours of the day we determined to put the heat on and all kinds of factors come into that. Some people may feel the cold, some people may not feel the cold, depending on their body type and different conditions within their own body. Whether a body comes down with some kind of illness, you know, like my body did yesterday, is also dependent on so many different factors. You know, I'm the one that got sick, not a lot of other people for some reason. You know, it's conditioned. And in the same way, what we see within our own minds, what we see running through the mind day after day is conditioned based on our own past influences, things that have happened to us either, you know, from the time we first came into this world as a baby infant to all the influences and the impact of conditions that have happened all through our lives up till now. And all that's running through the mind stream as we sit in meditation. And, and if, who knows about past lives? <laughs> you know, maybe some of that's running through too, you know, and, 
And if there's a lot of past lives, <laughs> it could be millions of years of stuff running through the mind stream. You know, um, who knows? Who knows where all that, all that is conditioned from? But yet, when we sit, that's what's arising within our mind. You know, what rises in one person's mind is completely different than somebody else's. You know, depending on what's going on. A couple people I talked to, actually a couple people, um, are in the middle of looking for jobs. And one person had to make a phone call this week about that. So there's a lot coming up around the phone call and around the job. That's because it's conditioned based on those factors. A very essential teaching of the Buddha. So in that, from this point of view of all things being conditioned, all the things of this world, this mind, this body, the the inner world, the outer world, really what that points to, and something that I've said before in another talk, is that nothing really can be different in this instant. Nothing can be different in this instant because what's arising in this instant is based on all the things that have come about in the past. I think it's really important to reflect on that statement because if we can really let that go deep, there can be truly a profound letting go that nothing can be different in this instant. Nothing can be different. We usually, when we first hear that, we think of it in a larger context of time, like, well, then that means nothing could have been different, you know, when I, you know, two years ago, or nothing will be different in 10 years from now. And somehow it doesn't seem so true in some respect. So surely things can be different, you know, things don't have to be as bad as they are. You know, but I think it's very important to take it out of the context of time, not even thinking about the past, not thinking about the future, but just in this instant. Because the past is essentially dead. You know, nothing's going to change that. It's it's dead and gone. You know, as one of my teachers says, everything that's occurred, even in the last minute, the words as they're coming out of my mouth, they're already back there with Alexander the Great. You know, <laughs> they're gone. And the future isn't born yet. You know, it's just a mental fabrication in the mind. And the present, our present is often filled with wanting to find ways to change the, what's occurring in the moment. So I'm taking it completely out of the context of time and just in this instant, based on all the conditions that have come together, this instant cannot be different. What that means is is that we really cannot change or control the circumstances of now. Of now. Things are as they are right now. When we start to slow down in our meditation practice and on retreat, we can start to have a little bit more of a sense of this as we reflect on this. There was an image that I found very helpful long ago when my teachers were talking about this once on retreat. And my teacher said that mindfulness can be seen in this way. It could be seen like as if we were sitting on a train going backwards, like you can sometimes here in England, because some of the chairs go, well, you're sitting there, the train's moving one direction, but you're actually sitting with your back going that way. And it's as if we're sitting on the train going backwards, looking out the window, and we're seeing where we've already been. Rather than sitting on the train going fo- looking forward, sitting forward and looking into the future, we're actually moving forward but looking back. And mindfulness can be a little bit like that. You know, it's like when we turn our attention to something, it's what's arising in front of us. We're catching it as it's arising. In other words, mindfulness receives the moment in its pristine state. It receives what's occurring just as it is before we start adding on all the stuff to it. 
It's like if we're sitting in a restaurant and we receive a plate of food, you know, it lands on your table. You've read the menu and you had a certain expectation of what you were going to receive in this plate of food. And then it arrives and you look at it and you smell it and then you have a response. <laughs> There's the initial seeing of it, the smelling of it, you know, and then the mind stuff starts to arise around it. There's not much you can do about it as it's arriving, once it arrives and lands on your table, because then it's just a recognition. It's just a recognition of what's there. But then our responses kick in, and this is where all the trouble starts. This is when our conditioned habits start taking over in response to that experience that has arrived in the instant, in this instant. Our responses are our conditioned habits, these habits that we have accumulated over all the years of our life. And the responses say we may, you know, the, the plate of food, the plate, again being the metaphor for experience, the plate of food may land on our table and we may find that uh, we don't like this. It's not at all the way we expected this plate was going to arrive. And we kind of, one, one response might be to sit there with kind of smoldering irritation. Now, it's not really what I wanted, but you don't really want to say anything and make a fuss. You're just smoldering with irritation. Or another response might be some kind of a self-righteous anger. You know, well, I ordered this, but now I got this. You know, what's wrong with this restaurant? You know, and getting quite indignant about the whole thing. Another response might be one of self-pity. You know, it always happens to me. Every time I try to order a meal that I think is really going to be good, it always comes like this. It's always crap or whatever. You know? Or there may be just a complete numbness, you know, a shutting down, not feeling anything, not responding anything. Perhaps our history was, our conditioning was that you're not allowed to respond, you're not allowed to say anything. So it's a complete freezing or numbing down of the emotional life. This is all in response to the plate of food. It might be that our habit is just being one of being very easygoing, you know, nothing really matters, everything's fine, you know doesn't really, it's just a plate of food, you know, but it's another, potentially another uh, conditioned response that we just caught up in, in a, a habitual response. Without awareness of the patterns as they're arising in response to the immediate condition, we can easily get caught in the habit pattern and then start acting out from it, particularly if it's a negative pattern. And that, that reaction can get more and more intensified depending on how much awareness or consciousness there is around it and how much interest there is to work with those mind states. And what happens is that as that, if that pattern isn't seen and begins to intensify, the pattern itself starts to have, have the power, and that's what's being acted out. Just the pattern. I, and I say that's me, but actually it's the pattern itself. I've lost awareness, and I'm overcome by the pattern in the mind, and essentially I'm just lost. We call this unconscious. This is what's called unconscious. Here's an example. This is from um, uh, another uh, a sutta called Sandcastles. Some children were playing beside a river. They made castles of sand, and each child defended his castle and said, this one is mine. They kept their castles separate and would not allow any mistakes about which was whose. When the castles were all finished, one child kicked over someone else's castle and completely destroyed it. The owner of the castle flew into rage, pulled the other child's hair, struck him with his fist, and bawled out, he has spoiled my castle. Come along, all of you, and help me punish him as he deserves. The others all came to his help. They beat the child with a stick and then stamped on him as he lay on the ground. Then they went on playing in their, 
with their sandcastles, each saying, this one's mine, no one else may have it, keep away, don't touch my castle. But evening came, it was getting dark, and they all thought they ought to be going home. No one now cared what became of his castle. One child stamped on his, another pushed his over with both hands. Then they, both, then they all turned away and went back, each to his home. So it's like something just starts to grow inside of us, become very strong, very powerful, and take over. And that's actually what becomes the actor, might say, the actor. In this way, we, if we see this clearly, we can see that it's actually quite impersonal because the pattern is what's acting. I say that's who I am because I'm completely caught in it, completely identified with it. But the pattern has the personality. Each of these mind states have their own personality. Anger has the personality of causing the body to get very tense and tight and the blood to constrict and the breathing to go faster and the mind to tighten and some possible uh, hurtful or harmful actions coming out of that either towards oneself or another. Fear has a different personality. Fear has more of the personality of contracting and tightening and withdrawing, kind of shrinking, collapsing, freezing, Mm -hmm. both in the body and in the mind. Uh, Shame and pity have another personality all of its own. No, another kind of shrinking, uh, tightening, going inward, feeling very small with shame and pity, even becoming invisible with shame, just wanting to disappear altogether. It's the pattern that's taking shape, the mind taking shape in some form. We say, this is me, this is who I am. We don't see the force that's moving through the mind. When we're talking about these responses in relationship to a plate of food, it's not such a big deal. But what if what lands on our table is a diagnosis from the doctor saying, well, we've just discovered that you have invasive breast cancer or a throat cancer. It just lands on the table. Mm -hmm. Or when I was uh, in California uh, last, a couple months ago, I got an email from a friend who told me about the birth of their, of their baby. And she said uh, uh, that they were all set for a home birth uh, with a local midwife. And six weeks before the baby was due to be born, her amniotic sac broke. And she was in a remote place in Northern California, and she had to be helicoptered to the hospital, you know, and be in the hospital for six weeks. Before the, uh, uh, until everything came back together. We don't know what's going to land on our table, but then our conditioned responses really matter. It really matters what we've developed, what kind of mind we have developed when we respond to that which shows up unexpectedly, as everything shows up unexpectedly in every moment. When we talk about nothing can be different, nothing can be different, does this also mean that then there's nothing we can do? Because it can be easy to make that leap, thinking, well, if nothing can be different, then why should I even participate in this? Because it's all just happening the way it needs to be happening. We may as well just get used to it. You know, we're just a bundle of habits. We may as well just practice acceptance because we're just going to die, you know. And why, why put in so much trouble? In this view, there would be no possibility of transformation. Everything would be kind of stuck in some kind of predetermined plan. I remember when I was in my 20s, 
uh, before I actually came into spiritual life, I um, really thought that was true. I thought that was what coming to some kind of deep understanding about life was really was, was that this is the personality that I got stuck with. This is the way I look is the way I got stuck with. So I may as well get used to it, you know. I may not like it, I may not want it, but that's really what acceptance is. Acceptance is what you see is what you get, so get used to it. And in that, there was no possibility of transformation. You know, it was just kind of solid. <laughs> kind of a solid personality, a solid mind, solid body, and that's the way it was. But there is the possibility of transformation. And that's what the teachings are based on. That we, each of us, can participate in our transformation. So how does this happen? How does it happen if in this instant it seems that nothing can be different? Then where does the transformation occur? The answer is fairy dust. And I really like that answer because <laughs> um, <coughs> one of my teachers, Ajahn Amaro, told me that a couple of months ago. He said the answer was fairy dust. And um, I just really love that because the fairy dust is the wisdom. It's like we have to sprinkle something into the mix. We have to put something into the whole mix of the arising or it is going to seem stuck. Everything is going to seem solid. But what we can add what we can bring to our experience in that response, in the way that we respond to what's going on, is the wisdom, is the wisdom that we're developing here. And these teachings are about the deepening of wisdom through the cultivation of awareness, through the cultivation of attention. So as I'm sitting on the train, looking at what's going by, if I'm present, if I'm present with that, and my mind is unfluttered, and I'm not blinded by the patterns of my reactivity to what's going by, then I can see. Then I can see what's happening. And when I can see what's happening, what arises with awareness, with consciousness, is what's called a dis discriminating wisdom, or the wisdom that can actually see what's going on and then decide what it wants to attend to. Where do I want to place my attention? Rather than being a victim of my mind, just being overcome and overwhelmed by all that's rushing through my mind, that awareness itself gives me the opportunity to decide, to make choice, to discriminate between what, what's of value and what isn't value, what's of benefit, what isn't of benefit, Otherwise, my mind is like a, I like the analogy of the, of the drunken monkey, you know, that's had too many fermented bananas in the tree, and it's just swinging from branch to branch, you know, trying to find the next fermented banana, you know, so it can even get more drunk, you know. I mean, usually, that's how we feel <laughs> in our minds, you know, we're just swinging from every, every contact that arises in the mind, we just go to it, we're just pulled by it. There's not much wisdom, there's not much awareness. But as we deepen this wisdom and deepen our awareness, we can say, yeah, that, I know that's just a fermented banana, and I've already had enough. <laughs> and if I keep eating those things, I'm really going to be totally out of it. And I'm not going to have much sense of uh, presence or, or, or being, be very centered or grounded in my life at all. So we can begin to discriminate. Mindfulness, our mindfulness practice, really is that of directing our attention, directing our attention so that we can come into some kind of understanding. We can come into some kind of, uh, of freedom or liberation within our own mind. Mindfulness can be 
thought of as like the inner brakes, inner brakes that slows down the picture just a little bit. We're not just rushing, we're not just caught up in the picture, but as we're watching what's, what's coming, we're sitting in the train watching what's coming, the mindfulness slows down that momentum of our response, momentum of habit, which allows the possibility of adding some fairy dust. You know, I mean, if we're just caught and we're just rushing and um, pulled by all the conditions of life, there may not be an opportunity to address the experience in any kind of a wise way. So the mindfulness, we might say, slows things down just a little bit. And certainly as we continue to practice, we find there is more uh, there is a bit more clarity. We can, res- we can see and respond with a little bit more space in the mind. We're not so, so caught up in it all. The wisdom, the wisdom or the fairy dust, manifests as the intention to let go of these negative responses or these difficult responses. The, the intention to let go of having to be led into all these destinations that cause us pain. You know, say, no, I'm not, I don't want to keep going there. You know, I don't want to keep finding myself caught up in that. You know, just that intention to want to go a different direction, to walk down a different path. This is really the important factor that arises in our own mind the power of intention. Having the intention is important because it's the intention that inclines the mind in a particular direction, the intention that arises with mindfulness. For example, an example is when a a thief walks into a barbershop, the thief is not going to necessarily look at people's heads. You know, the barber looks at people's heads, but the thief is more likely to look at people's pockets. That's where the mind is going to be inclined. But what's necessary for our intention is, again, the fairy dust, you know, to incline the mind with wisdom, to incline the mind in a wholesome direction, a direction that's going to bring about more freedom, more spaciousness, more clarity, more connection, more peace of mind. For example, the early days, well, I remember one time when I was sitting a, a long retreat, in the very, or very early days of my practice, there were quite a few of my friends that were also on the retreat. This was at the Insight Meditation Society on the East Coast in the States. And I remember how critical I was of my friends. I just really would get so angry at them. I mean, if one of my friends would sit for longer than the 45 minutes and sit for maybe an hour or an hour and 15 minutes, I'd get really angry because I'd think, well, they're just trying to look good. (laughs) You know, they're just trying to be impressive, you know, or they're just trying to get me angry, (laughs) you know. I mean, I would definitely have, uh, always have some ill intent, you know, in the way that I was viewing that. And I remember one time um, I was sitting for a longer period of time. I was sitting uh, a bit through the work period in the meditation hall. And my friend, who had the job of vacuuming the meditation hall, came in with the vacuum cleaner at the beginning of the work period. And I got so angry. It's like, couldn't he see I'm sitting here? You know, I'm, I'm deep in meditation, right? You know. Um, <laughs> I'm deep in meditation, and he's starting the vacuum cleaner and making all this noise with no regard to the fact that I was the only person in the hall, in this big hall, sitting there. And I get so angry. And I could see again and again how my mind would just turn on my friends, and I didn't understand it. I didn't really have much insight into it. And then I kept, then I started to see that actually the same thing was happening towards myself that I was being as critical and as judgmental to myself as well as I was to my friends. And that as I started to have more understanding of this, I saw that 
and it really had nothing to do with my friends at all, but it was my mind. I had this very, very strong pattern in my own mind of being critical and judgmental, and it was very painful. It caused a lot of sorrow both to myself and to my friends, who didn't really seem like my friends at all, but really seemed more like my enemies. So as I started having more understanding, I would see how my mind would keep moving to the same point of fixation. I'd keep getting caught in the same way that they're doing something wrong or I'm doing something wrong. And I kept fixating around that, which kept giving me evidence that I was right (laughs) because everything I would see would keep reinforcing the fact that everything was wrong. That's where my mind kept moving to. And as I understood more and more of the teachings, like teaching saying, well, notice this, that if you follow this, it's just bringing you pain and it's bringing your friend's pain, then don't necessarily go there. Don't follow that. Don't let that increase. Don't let that build. Don't let that particular thought get more and more reinforced because this is just increasing that particular habit or or continuing to reinforce that particular habit and it was this understanding of knowing that I needed to turn my awareness and wisdom to that particular difficult mind pattern that that in itself was the application of wisdom was the application of the teachings. And not to follow the thought, but yet follow the thought that tells me not to follow the judgmental thought. Because that's still a thought. Not to follow the judgmental thought, but follow the thought that says, don't follow it. Because that's the thought of wisdom. That's the thought of awareness and connection and harmony. And that's what I want to increase. That's what I want to accumulate. That's what I want to strengthen in my mind, not the negative tendencies. So when we start to understand how we can actually apply the wisdom or the insight that we have that will bring about the transformation, we can begin to influence our transformation in this way. And as we strengthen our intention to do this, it strengthens the outcome. As we strengthen our intention towards wholesome action, it strengthens that outcome. But I think it's important to remember that that transformation or that change isn't something that's necessarily going to change right away. That we can actually be aware that we're caught (laughs) in anger or fear or negativity or judgment or criticism. And even the awareness of it is not strong enough to change the pattern in that time, in that particular time sequence. One of the great teachers, Ajahn Chah, who's one of the great uh, forest, um, Thai forest masters, uh, the teacher of Ajahn Sumedho and the Amavati lineage, he said that um, 70% of spiritual practice is knowing you should let go and not being able to. I think that's actually very comforting. (laughs) 70% knowing that you should let go and not being able to. Because people really do think that mindfulness or awareness has, has some kind of like magic wand that as soon as it touches the pattern, it'll just dissolve the thought or the feeling or the emotion or the pain or whatever it is, that that somehow just will make it disappear. But it isn't that way at all. We can be very, very aware and the habit can still persist. And what that means is, is that the habit is is still stronger than the awareness. That the habit has, still has a lot of force in the mind that is still able to pull the mind in a way that still is causing pain or suffering. And the awareness is just not strong enough yet. It's just, it's it's like the the pattern could be like, you know, like the elephant 
and the awareness could be like the mouse, <laughs> you know. But we have to just keep developing and cultivating and practicing. And then the awareness, it seems the awareness then begins to grow and get stronger, and we begin to increase our capacity to be able to be with these difficult mind states. And more and more, the mind states lose the force, lose the power they have in the mind. Sometimes it can be quite um, disheartening to come to a retreat again and again and again and just see these demons or these difficult patterns flare up in our mind. And sometimes we can think, oh, well, the practice isn't even working. We want to kind of throw it all away. But we have to be so careful. These are the times we have to be very careful not to judge our practice, not to evaluate our practice, but keep going, keep going, and know that every moment of mindfulness makes a tremendous difference in breaking down the force of those negative patterns. It really does take time to cultivate this inner awareness that has the strength to cut through but this is truly the possibility. The, the Buddha, there's one discourse from the Buddha where he talks about being the master of his thoughts. He says, I can think the thoughts I want to think and not think the thoughts I don't want to think. I am the master of my thoughts. <laughs> now, showing us possibility there that the awareness, the, the, the true state of our, of our consciousness becomes so potent that nothing else has a chance to grow or to live in that potency. We don't know how long it'll take for some of these very, very powerful forces in the mind, but over time we can see that the habits that were so strong begin to drop away. And for me, in relationship to the way that I used to judge my friends, I mean, I don't really do that anymore. I don't see myself doing it the way that I did it uh, 20 years ago. But rather, what I do see arising more often is more empathy and compassion and care and respect that was really not there very often back in those early days. That seems to have come in as a replacement for those very difficult states of mind. Hmm. I have a whole lot more to say than I thought. <laughs> I'm wondering if I need to taper this. <laughs> there was a woman on a retreat uh, not too long ago that I was working with, she came into an interview and she was talking about uh, the fact that she was, had been a caretaker for her elderly mother for some time, for some months. And her elder, elderly mom had many, many difficulties and she would complain a lot and be very negative a lot. And, and this was really getting, it was really hard for this woman to be around that. And then while she was on retreat, she, the memory came when she saw herself being with her mother. She saw that she would be constantly lecturing her mom, telling her mom that she should really see how much she had to be grateful for and that she really should stop complaining and being so negative about her life because look at all the really good things that were happening in her life. And then her mom would get reactive and she couldn't really see at all what her daughter was talking about. And then this woman would get really upset again with her mom. It's like, why can't she see how great her life is? And she'd get really angry at her and very frustrated with her. And while she was on a retreat, she would just see this whole dynamic playing. And she really wanted to try to change her mom, you know, really try to get her to be different. And they were really, she saw how caught she was in this rigid dynamic, that there wasn't, from that point of view, there really wasn't any way out. The mom was reacting to her, she was reacting to her mom, and they were caught in that. This, the daughter was only seeing what was wrong. She 
she couldn't see what was right. She just wanted to get her mom to change. And while she was on retreat and saw this whole dynamic playing in her mind, she realized that actually she could stop fixating on her mother's faults and maybe try to focus on her mom's good qualities. And when she said that, she said, it's not like there aren't good qualities. She said, there's lots of good qualities, but my mind keeps going to the faults, to the problems. My mind keeps turning that way. She said, I could see that I could see my mom in a really different way. I could see really what a wonderful person she is. And I don't have to fabricate that. That's really true. That there's another way that I can see her. And if I see her like that, then I'm really seeing her. I'm not seeing her just through my own negative lenses. And she really, as she talked about it, she, I could just feel and sense the opening that was happening for her, that she really saw, she said, this would really make things so much better for me and my mom. I just started seeing who she really is and seeing her goodness. And there was a wonderful shift that started happening for her in that realization and that insight. So that shift of where her mind was fixating, because what happens is we, the mind keeps wanting to look for evidence of its truth. Yeah, look, see, look when she does that, or look when she says that, or we can see how we do that with ourselves, you know, how the mind just keeps going back, have, getting evidence for what's wrong, for the problem. And, and we can potentially, if we see this, if we have some insight into how this works, we may be able to incline the mind in another way. So this practice of identifying and letting go of our fixed views, this is really what begins to develop an elasticity of the mind, where the mind isn't so rigid, the mind doesn't feel so bound up in our ego habit, where we feel so stuck in our own minds. But as we, we work with our minds in this way, I mean, each time you bring your mind back to your breath or your mind back to your feelings or your body and move it away from the difficult pattern, it's a, it's a way of, of stretching or, or bringing some elasticity to, a, to the place where the mind feels quite stuck. And when the mind is not caught in the struggle or the conflict. We call this the equanimous mind. The Buddha, the Buddha quoted this as saying, the equanimous mind is, li- a mind is a mind like this is purified, bright, malleable, wieldly, radiant like refined gold. And he says, when a goldsmith takes gold, refines it in a furnace, he can make any ornament out of that he wishes. Pliable, flexible. Our mind isn't just caught in something. So we want to drop down, you know, drop down mm-hmm. out of our thinking mind where we're not so stuck. We don't feel so bound by things, where things are arising and passing and moving and much more free. This is also from Ajahn Chah, the great master. About this mind, in truth it isn't really anything. It's just a phenomena. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness are not the mind, but a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is we who are upset, or at ease, or whatever. 
But really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. It's just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to those sense impressions. The mind follows them, and if it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we train the mind to know those impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice that we put ourselves through. So the teachings are pointing to something in the mind that isn't being pulled around by all the conditions, all these worldly conditions that are coming and going. And the worldly conditions also mean the mind, the body, the feelings, the sensations, the sights, the sounds, the taste, the smells, the touch. But there's something that is already peaceful, something that is already peaceful. And it's all, all of these, in that all of the conditions are all happening spontaneously. No, it's not like we need to do anything about all these conditions. But I think that more our practice is to recognize that which is not bound up in the conditions. We get so invested and so involved in all of that, and we forget what really matters. We forget what's really true, what's really, what's really essential in ourselves. So this spontaneity, this spontaneity from that place, from that place, sensing, getting a sense of how everything is already spontaneous, that nothing is stuck in this universe. When I was visiting there in downtown Bern, where my friends are living, in the middle of the town there's this very old and wonderful clock and it's a um, very big clock that's sitting that's in the middle of the, of the square, in its old wood clock. And at different times of the, of the, of the hour, the, the hour or the 15 minutes or half hour, a different uh, mechanism with a puppet or some kind of angel or something will come out. And it's something that's really moving and very graceful and very beautiful. And it's all moving by the gears in the back of the clock, which you can't see. The air, all the gears are, are connected to every other gear. And it's all, it's constantly moving, constantly in flux. The only thing that would stop the whole mechanism is to, if, if a pebble got stuck in one of the gears and the whole thing would shut down. But that's possible for the clock. But in the universe, the same thing is occurring. Everything is triggering everything else. It's like the, like the gears of the clock. Everything's moving everything else, triggering off this and that. This is happening because of that. Everything's in flux. So it isn't possible for anything in the universe to be stuck. There's no, it's not possible for there to be a stone that drops in somewhere and the whole thing stops. I mean, if one thing's stuck, then everything's stuck. If one thing's free, then everything's free. So in this universe, the only thing that can possibly be stuck is an idea of stuckness. There isn't any other possibility because everything is moving freely and spontaneously. So our job is to remove the idea of stuckness. What happens if we move this idea? Can we then sense the freedom, the freedom that's there all the time in every instant, in every arising instant? It's the coming and going, arising and passing. Can we sense this freedom 
now? Can we pay respect to this intelligence that's expressing itself here in every moment of this existence? This is from a shaman woman Eskimo in the 20th century. The great sea has set me in motion, set me adrift, moving me like a weed in a river. The sky and the strong wind have moved the spirit inside me till I am carried away, trembling with joy. And can we feel that great sea setting us in motion? Everything's free in that. Sometimes as we're, we might be walking outside and, you know, for a moment the clouds part and the sun pours down and and the mind gets very quiet, and we can just feel in that moment that everything's okay. But then when that changes and when the clouds come again and it starts to pour and the mind gets restless and we're not happy, then we think things aren't okay. But I wonder if actually even when the fear is there, the panic is there, the rage is there, the anger is there, can we somehow sense that even that is a vital expression of this life, a vital expression of this existence, that it can't be different in that moment, that it's life coming to express itself, life coming to show itself in that instant. And can we somehow pay respect to that too each time it arrives? Ramana Maharshi, the great 20th century sages from India, said, you thank God for the good things that happen to you, but but don't thank him for the bad things as well, and that's where you go wrong. So can, can we just let all of this move through? Kind of let all of this wash through and, 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 and work with, see how we're responding to that without, see if we can respond to that without more um, holding and negativity and reactivity, but somehow find a way of just for an instant, just to let it open up and be there. And in that we pay respect. We pay respect to every condition that arises in every moment of this existence. We let go of our limited views. And then in that way, everything in the whole world becomes free for us. I'd just like to end with this last poem that I, I really like to read that just expresses this spontaneity and freedom. It's by a woman um, named Evelyn Biemkis. Uh, Clouds are flowing in the river, waves are flying in the sky. Life is laughing in a pebble. Does a pebble even die? Flowers grow out of the garbage, such a miracle to see. What seems dead and what seems dying makes for butterflies to be. Life is laughing in a pebble. Flowers bathe in morning dew. Dust is dancing in my footsteps, and I wonder who is who. Clouds are flowing in the river. Clouds are drifting in my tea on a never-ending journey. What a miracle to be. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.